Okay, welcome everybody to another Down the Hatch podcast. As you know, we are on this Swallowing Neurophysiology series, and we're back at it. Our last podcast was about SLP so female, so not necessarily about swallowing physiology, but we are very excited because we're jumping back in with a pretty hot topic. It's something that most people should care about because most people, actually, even if you're in an educational setting, has had to evaluate a person's mouth and perhaps throat and get a sense of cranial nerve function. And so the topic that we will be going over is cranial nerves and their examination. I haven't quite decided what the title is, but by the time you're listening to this, you will know what the title is, so that's good. Um, We have a special guest we are introducing Dr. Kendria Garand, and she is somebody who is uh, in the field of swallowing, but also is an instructor. So we're pretty excited to have her. I won't go much further because I'll have you introduce yourself. Well, thank you so much. So hi, everybody. My name is Kendria Garand. I am an assistant professor in the Department of Speech Pathology and Audiology at the University of South Alabama. We are located in Mobile, Alabama, home of Mardi Gras. Um, So I actually founded and directed, um, and I direct the Swallowing Disorders Initiative Research Laboratory. So my clinical and research experience for quite a number of years now is in dysphagia, as well as aging and its impact on healthy swallowing. And clinically, I primarily see motor neuron disease, so I have a true passion for patients with ALS. And so I'm very excited to be here. This is a topic that is Um, a huge passion of mine, and I teach it in my dysphagia courses and have been fortunate enough to do some lectures for ASHA on this particular topic. So thank you. Fabulous. And I guess the challenge for us will be that we have to be using our words and we can't be showing nerve uh, pathways, (laughs) but that's okay. I mean, if you guys see any of us, if any of us see any of us on this podcast pointing, we have to say, hey, they can't see you. Because <laughs> I do that sometimes. I'm like pointing to my neck. I'm like over here. And Leisha's like, they can't see you. So well, hopefully anyway. they don't need a visual to uh, when you're pointing to your neck to know where that is located. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I'm just going to start by saying leash, cranial nerves. What about them? <laughs> so I became really interested in this topic as a podcast. Um topic for us to to dive into a little bit for a couple of reasons. One is cranial nerves are probably one of the most common, um, you know, common examinations that's pretty universal in a bedside swallowing evaluation. When you when you learn about a bedside swallow, it's you have to know your cranial nerves and it's so important. And this is the most integral part of or one of the most integral parts of a, of a swallowing evaluation at the bedside. And um, one of the things I find really interesting about the cranial nerve exam is that there's such an emphasis on how to test it, what we're testing, and where I find there to be a little bit of a gap, and this is more of the area that I want to talk about today, is what do we do with that information, right? So I think a lot of courses and a lot of discussions, especially when I was in grad school, it was so focused on how to test. And that's super important. And I think for purposes of this podcast, especially just given the format of the podcast, it's probably not as fruitful for us to go through every single cranial nerve and talk about every pathway and how to test. There's a lot of information 
on that. And if you are interested in that and you are hoping to glean that from this podcast, um, Kendria does have a great course. Is this is that the one that's through ASHA or Northern Speech Services on yeah. your cranial nerve exam? Yeah, yeah. I ASHA. would direct you to I would direct you to that, and that is very comprehensive. And um, but I think today I'd really like to talk about what is the purpose of the cranial nerve exam? What are we What are we gathering for information? How do we use it? Kind of what's what's the bigger picture when we're um, utilizing the cranial nerve exam? And, and maybe even just like, you know, what is our role as a speech pathologist? Because this is something that neurologists also um, evaluate. And there's a lot of debate as to how comprehensive that is and, and maybe what our role is to augment that. Um, so I'd be curious, Kendra, just your thoughts on, I guess, just kind of starting basic, like, you know, what what is the cranial nerve exam? What's a goal? Let's just start kind of big picture, maybe. Yeah, you actually said two things and so I'm going to try to so remember that I have two things to comment on um so let's talk about the overall purpose so for for me when I'm performing a cranial nerve exam um it it provides a better clinical picture it informs me so it's informing me on what I'm going to predict thing that I may see if I take them into an instrumental swallow study. Um, it's going to help link back what I'm hearing, what I can overtly see with my limitations, um, because I can't see the pharynx, uh, what I'm, I'm seeing, and then trying to link that back to the function and link that back to their complaint. For me, because of my, um, if I want to call myself an expert, but with my experience with dealing with neurological populations, a lot of the times patients are coming to me that don't have a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So the power of the cranial nerve exam for me and linking it with my motor speech and swallowing assessments helps inform the diagnostic team potentially and help with that differential. And so I, so to me, a lot of power comes from my cranial nerve exam because I'm trying to help them differentiate between, is this an upper motor neuron lesion? Is it a lower motor neuron lesion? Are there sensory impairments? Is it purely just motor? How is this impacting function? And that can better guide than their exclusionary diagnoses, right? Because ALS is exclusionary diagnosis and also helps think about, okay, so what do we know then about prognosis and what referrals are now needed because sometimes we're the first ones that look in a patient's mouth we always assume that everybody else looks in a patient's mouth and sometimes they don't and you know because we we tend to differ in how we approach the cranial nerve exam you know one person may just be like okay smile and pucker puff out your cheeks and that's it Uh. and i've seen that um (laughs) Sorry for any physicians. I've seen that more on the physician side where it's a little bit more limited. We tend to do a little bit more thorough job. And again, we're looking at it from a very different standpoint. I'm looking at it from how does this impact speech and swallowing function, right? They may be looking at it from um, a, a different rationale, a different purpose. But I think collectively, if we come together and then talk about what we're seeing, then this can um, approach a better diagnosis and a plan of care for that patient. So if I'm the first one seeing them, I'm noticing something a little off, then I know where I need to refer them next mm-hmm. based on what I'm seeing. And I and I think that's a so that's a huge purpose for for me. It's about okay, how is this going to guide my clinical decision making, including where do I need to go to next, whether that's for my own assessment purposes or if that if I need to refer them to another physician. That's a really good point. I I'm curious 
So I think you're in a, a really unique situation with the patient population that you work with, especially because you have a lot of patients that you said come in undiagnosed. They have some weird symptoms and, you know, you may be one of the first stops on that trajectory of finding a differential diagnosis. Do you think that because you're you're in that situation where you see these kind of patients, especially because in general you're working with a neurologic population, that perhaps your cranial nerve exam is likely more comprehensive, rightfully so, than what a standard cranial nerve exam would be for any other patient population. So if you have a patient that comes in maybe with um, some esophageal complaints that a cranial nerve exam in that situation may look a little differently than a cranial nerve exam you have for somebody who's coming in with generalized neuro symptoms. And I'm curious, do you think that there should be a different kind of different tiers of a cranial nerve exam, right? Like some may be more comprehensive, more time consuming than other exams. Do you think that there's a continuum with that? Things that we should just always test or things that maybe you save in your pocket for when you're really kind of deep diving? Yeah, so I've had the I've had opportunities over the years to practice in various settings because I also think settings might have a little bit to do with it as well. Um, so you know, like uh, my probably my acute care cranial nerve exam or oral neck exam or whatever you want to call it um, uh, is was definitely different than when I was in inpatient rehab or you know I had an hour with a patient and then outpatient where I also had an hour and here I'm a clinical supervisor for our graduate students well my diagnostic team has two hours I mean I can put the patient through the ringer if I want to Um, and so yes I think I do just like anything else you know I I follow the MBSIP protocol when I perform video fluoroscopy studies but I still have the leeway to tailor that based on what I'm seeing, right? I mean, we're still allowed to practice independently, even if we have standardized practices. So I would say the same thing for the cranial nerve exam. So to me, standardization is important because it makes me more reliable and I'm better able to mm-hmm. link things when I do something a little bit more objectively. But at the same time, it still gives me some flexibility in altering that depending on what I'm seeing. So sure. for example, I typically don't do reflex testing unless I, I'm I'm really thinking that maybe there's some degenerative process going on or if I know there's some frontal issues going on that makes me a little bit more suspect. Um, I can think of this beautiful example that I have um, from when I was back in Charleston. The I actually got a referral for voice and speech and she walks in and the husband starts commenting on memory. And I was like, okay, Mm. this is interesting. And so I performed my cranial nerve exam. Well, she had a couple of positive signs for uh, frontal release. So she had two positive um, frontal release signs. So I actually refer her to neuropsych and she ended up with a diagnosis of Alzheimer's. Um, Mm. So I think we, and now granted, that is one case in the thousands that I've seen, but that's still just as important, especially for that individual. So I want to ask you to clarify a couple terms because we there are some things people won't know and then I have a, a comment slash question first please clarify exclusionary diagnosis and frontal release so exclusionary diagnosis when we when we think about that what we're saying is that um, some signs and some symptoms that a patient can present with can be very similar across several diagnoses and so say for example for ALS 
Um, so it, uh, the signs that they present with could be they could have a brain tumor, they could have a spinal tumor, they could have Lyme disease. So there's all these diagnoses that are in the differential. And so what they do is through testing, they will go through and start crossing off items. So we know it's not this, the MRI was negative, you know, this is not showing this. And then we lead down to what's left. And so ALS is what's left. And the reason why you want to do that is because some of those diseases that I mentioned are treatable, right? They have cures um, and ALS does not at this time. So they want to make sure that they're really going through and making sure that it's not going to be anything else that is mimicking that they actually target treatment and potentially cure versus giving a diagnosis where you're telling an individual there's absolutely nothing we can do. We can try to manage your symptoms and we may be able to let you live a little bit longer, but then you have a whole argument about quality versus quantity. So we won't go into that. So really the point is like, okay, so let's cross everything off the list. And then if we have nothing else, that's the diagnosis that you end up with. Um, with frontal release signs. So typically if you, if you've had the, um, You've been around a baby and you know there's some certain reflexes that they present with but if you did that to an older child or an adult they shouldn't have those same reflexes and part of that is because their brain develops um, and so those reflexes are inhibited and so they're they're no longer um, a, a parent with neurological injury especially with bilateral frontal lobe involvement, those reflexes are no longer inhibited and they're actually present. And so it's a good sign that something neurological um, is happening and it's making those reflexes what we call become positive. And so we see this a lot in degenerative diseases. We see this um, uh, in our brain injury patients, especially again when they have um, bilateral frontal lobe dysfunction. And some of the degenerative cases we see are things like dementia, ALS, etc. So would an example of that be, you know, with a baby, when you kind of like tap their lips, they kind of have that suck response. Like when you see that in a, in a patient, then that is indicative of, of a frontal release. Yeah. So you have to be a little bit careful because sometimes um, we can still see those signs in healthy individuals. And so this is where you kind of have to delve into the literature a little bit. Um, some are more, um, more common, I would say, than others. Uh, and it tends to be linked with age as well, right? Everything tends to be linked with age. Um, so you just have to be a little bit careful when you're making that kind of like a definitive thing, like, oh, I saw this, so, oh my God, they have dementia. You know, we have to be a little, we have to tailor a little bit the excitement when we see these signs. What I would suggest is that you, again, use it with in combination of your other findings during your exam, and you want to see if there's more than one present. You also want to tailor it back to as if you can habituate that response from being present. So if I, so one of the things is like a labellar response. So if I tap you in the middle between your eyebrows, um, you know, first couple of times you may blink a little bit, but then you become habituated and you stop blinking and that's normal. For somebody that has a positive sign, they would keep blinking. So I may, so I may document that and then I may go back and test it again and just to see if they've habituated to the response. So if you show some habituation, it's probably more, it's more typical and healthy. But if they don't and that reflex continues to be present, then I'm like, okay, maybe something's going on. But again, you always want to put in the context of other signs that you're seeing. So reflex testing, I may do very specifically if there is a concern. So if there is a concern of something, um, nervous system dysfunction, and yet they don't have a diagnosis, I'd be more inclined to do reflex testing um, versus if, you know, if I was quickly trying to do um, 
a screen in, you know, the ICU. Sure. So I wanted to step back just a little bit and go to this idea of cranial nerve testing. And I like um, listening to your perspective so far. But as everybody was talking, I started to think, one, is cranial nerve testing a misnomer? Are we testing the cranial nerves in isolation? And the answer is no. We're testing a whole system, but we're calling it a cranial nerve exam. I'm going to go back to my lamp example. If you walk into the room and you try to turn a lamp on, there are so many parts of that thing that could be problematic. It could be the bulb. It could be something about the switch not actually getting to the bulb. It could be uh, the actual nerve. It could actually be the nervous system, right? It could be the peripheral nervous system. It could be the central nervous system. I think there are a lot of things that we that we have to be able to differentially diagnose, but it doesn't necessarily mean to it doesn't necessarily mean that we're just testing the cranial nerves. Um, I think of the cranial nerves as the actual cord between the lamp and the wall. It is the nerve. If we think of the wall and all the stuff behind the wall that sort of programs some things in our house as a central nervous system, sort of that panel system that you, if a whole part of the house doesn't have power, you go and you flip that on and off. But then there's a cord that goes from one plug to one lamp. And if you cut that cord, these two can't connect anymore. And I think of the cranial nerves more of that than the spinal nerves, right? So they're, they are there. I'm not saying that they're not the central, you know, that they're, they don't have an important role in the central nervous system, but they're ultimately executing the plan that's already been programmed above, right? So uh, you cut the cord, you don't have any function. And most of our patients don't have surgeries where a cord has been cut, right? Most of our patients are intact and we have to figure out, is this the end organ? Is it a muscle issue or a sensory issue? Is it the nerve? Is it the central nervous system? And our testing is supposed to do what you said, where you talked about reflex testing. Ooh, why is this reflex not habituating um, on its own? Why is the cortex not taking over and going, this is annoying. Let me shut that off for a second. I don't want to blink anymore. So what you're doing is not really cranial nerve testing in, a, in an isolate in isolation any more than knee jerk is spinal nerve testing, right? So I do wonder whether or not just similar to the clinical swallowing evaluation, the word swallowing got in there and everybody got all obsessed with looking over the swallow and now trying to walk people back from this idea that they can't really test the swallow, they can only infer. I wonder if the term, uh, this title of cranial nerve testing makes us seem more like we can target one thing when really we have to understand the whole system and know that these nerves are a link to that. And sure, you go to one part of the tongue versus another part of the tongue and you're testing different kinds of behaviors or different parts of, you know, the brain. Um, but I still think that, cause think about, think about the tongue for movement. We're talking about medulla, but for sensation, we're talking about pons. And so we have to not just know what the nerve is, but we have to know where it carries to and what that part of the brain does differently. So what do you guys think about how this term makes us approach the system as I think a silo thing? Like I did, I check my boxes and that's why people are box checking instead of saying, what's the system doing? I said a lot. Yeah, I think it's a good point. I think that there's multiple components in here. I think one is a semantic component, right? So, um, you know, to say it's a cranial nerve test, perhaps, perhaps calling it something different would help um, alleviate some of the confusion or, or what may be a little misleading if we, if we want to get technical, right? Like maybe we call it a, I mean, some people call it an oral neck exam, right? Or maybe it's called a cranial nerve 
pathway exam or something. I don't know. Um, you know, I think that it comes down to um, an understanding of, so there's two ways to approach this, right? Like some people approach a cranial nerve exam by testing the actual nerve itself, like going through, like, I'm going to test cranial nerve five and test all the different components and the different structures. And some people approach it by, I'm going to, I'm going to do it by structure. So I'm going to test the tongue, then I'm going to test the lips, and then I'm going to test test different structures, knowing that there's multiple cranial nerves, both sensory and motor that are, um, that are controlling, you know, each each structure that there may be multiple cranial nerves involved. Um, so I do think that that's, that is something that we have to be really a- aware of. Um, I don't know, what do you think, Andrea? I think uh, um, I'm not too concerned. There are definitely many different names that people call it. Um, uh, oral facial exam, oral facial sensory motor exam, cranial nerve exam, cranial nerve test, whatever it is. Um, so I'm not too concerned as long as we understand the limitations mm-hmm. of the and, and the purpose of the exam. So yeah. I'm not too tied up in the, sem- in the semantics. Um, but I, I think, and I agree with you. Um, so when I teach, I teach bicranial nerves. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so it's like, okay, so here's five, here's what it does. Here's how you can test to get an idea of its, of its function. And that's after we've gone through a whole host of talking about cortical vulvar tracts and talking in like about the brainstem and, and talking about those pathways. Um, and then, you know, in motor speech, they get me and we talk about the, you know, theories of motor speech control. So we're talking about the planning and the programming and, and some of those kind of um, uh, higher cortical areas. Um, and, but, so I, I I would relate it back to then going, um, no matter what you're calling it, or no matter, or no matter if you're going by cranial nerve, if you're going by structure, um, to me, I would just continue to put forth with the standardization of what you're doing um, uh, in order to make you yourself more reliable. And again, still recognizing the limitations of just because that person didn't move their tongue well one doesn't mean that they're weak because that's a huge soapbox of mine um and 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 two that you're still limited because you're still only focused here and you may not know exactly what's going on here what's here what's here and here they can't see you (laughs) oh god i see Ah, i did it so i was pointing just to my mouth or so if you're talking about the tongue not moving so you're overtly looking at the tongue you're saying oh it's not moving um you can't just assume um, unless you do have a, 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 so again, for me, a lot of my patients don't have a, a neural diagnosis when they first come in. And so I can't just assume just because a tongue's not moving that I know exactly why it's not moving and therefore I know the, the injury. Um, I think, again, the culmination of a comprehensive exam can kind of help lean you towards that because there are some things that will say okay you know what that's lower motor neuron sign or hey that's upper motor neuron sign um uh but we but there's but you have to know the the nervous system pretty well and i think if you don't then that leads to a lack of confidence um and then i fear that that may preclude clinicians from performing an exam that I think is worthy of your time. Or the patient's time, you mean, right? 
and the patient's time. Most importantly, who cares about our time? We get paid whether we do it or not. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, yeah, so this kind of brings me to a sticking point that I have, which is um, being, you know, you said this, that we have to be really careful about how we're documenting these things. And I see a lot of times the example of, you know, say the tongue isn't moving properly, right? Maybe there's reduced range of motion. And I think that sometimes I'll read a lot in a, in an evaluation, if the cranial nerve is being done by cranial nerve, that there's a tendency to write, oh, cranial nerve 12 impaired, right? Like these, putting these labels on something. And it's like, I, I know what you're trying to say, but we don't know that cranial nerve 12 is impaired at all. It could be something completely um, unrelated to the actual nerve itself. So I, I, I tend to try to encourage students and myself to to comment on what you're actually seeing versus labeling something as impaired, not impaired, or even like putting the, you know, modifiers of, you know, mildly impaired or something like that. It's like, what does that even mean? Right? It's like, what, what, well, what are you seeing? Okay, I get that you're testing that nerve, but what is it that you're actually visualizing during the exam? And again, like you said, it, how does it relate to the whole big picture? Like, what, what's the goal here, right? Like, what are we actually trying to do? Um, you said something early on that I just want to come back to because it's my major soapbox about the cranial nerve exam. And I'm glad that you talked about it, which is, um, I think my biggest pet peeve with a cranial nerve exam is when, um, you know, I see a lot of clinicians who do a cranial nerve exam and they write in their report, like, cranial nerve five, seven, nine, 10, you know, 12, check, 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 check. And then it kind of stops there. And maybe even something is impaired and it stops there, right? It's just that it's been documented. The box has been checked. Yep. Reduced. Um, uh, like maybe it, there's a tongue deviation or facial droop or something. And then it just ends. And then they go on with their bolus trials. And there's no connection between the cranial nerve exam and the bolus trials. And what you said, which I'm so glad you said it, which is, how is this relating to a hypothesis about what we're going to take into the fluoro suite? And I think for myself, that's a huge gap in, in clinical practice that isn't emphasized enough, which is how is all of this information that we're doing at the bedside relate to a hypothesis about what you think you might see in the fluoro? Because um, I think too many times clinicians are going into a fluoro without a hypothesis, even though they just spent and maybe an hour, 30 minutes, 20 minutes, however long with a patient gathering all this information. Um, you know, I, I guess, I guess maybe my whole point of wanting to do this podcast personally was to promote the use of these, of this data that we're collecting at the bedside as a tool for what to take into the next step. And I think sometimes that's where, that's where it stops. And it, that's where I think we do ourselves a disservice. So this is like a, can I take it a step? Can I take it? Okay, so what we've learned, one, is that Alicia requested we do something on cranial nerves so she can say that sentence, okay? Have a hypothesis. But let me suggest, as somebody who, I don't know how many more years I've been doing science, but uh, I'm older than you guys, so before you even have a hypothesis, you generally have data that support your hypothesis. So, By the time you do the clinical, you even walk into the room, you should have, I'm not talking about the chart review. I'm talking about pre-consult. This is not about one case. Most people have not been collecting data through their clinical practice to know what is a heavily weighted thing to test 
And what is a less heavily weighted thing to test? And here's what I mean. Most of what we do when we call this thing a cranial nerve exam or a oral MEC, whatever you want, a clinical swallowing valve, basically, right? Whatever you guys are calling it, I still think that there are people who have been doing this for years and still will raise their hand and say, has research yet told us which signs tell us whether or not people should end up in a floor or not? So let's go before you even talk about what to do in the fluoro. Whether or not to go in a fluoro, to me, should be something people already know based on the data they've been collecting their whole career. After all of these years of doing a clinical swallowing evaluation or cranial nerve exam or oral mech, what were the signs that carried through? Even if you've only been doing it for one year and in one year of practice, you've done, let's just say, 35 circumstances where you end up going from clinical testing to instrumental, be it fees or fluoro. How frequently were you right about up that cough or up that tongue wag? They don't even know. They're not collecting their own data. So you don't even know what to spend time on. Like, okay, I test these other things. I test this reflex or I test this tongue wag or I test this facial droop because it makes me thorough. But I know the money is in these five things because 50% of the time, it's more indicative of of X behavior. But these ones, it's it's like, oh my God, I was so surprised that this nasal drip actually led to blah, blah, blah. So to again, to have a, in science, by the time you write the hypothesis, you've written a whole introduction about what the literature before you has said. You are the literature before you and you don't even know what you've been doing. And by you, I mean us everybody not you guys not yeah everyone's got their hands up like elvin on the cosby show like hey 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 you know what i mean but um uh again as i said i am older so elvin and the cosby show is my cultural reference for it's not my fault (laughs) but yeah so can we talk about the kinds of things that you guys believe are more heavily weighted toward a function we care about namely swallowing and the and i'm talking about non-swallowing things right? Because mm-hmm. we don't see the swallow. We don't even see the oral prep once the lips close. But we see the things that we told them to do, the non-swallow tasks. We see some responses to the swallow. We might see, hear a voice. You might see some eyes watering. You might hear a cough, a throat clear, or they tell you that went the wrong way. <laughs> what are the things that are we should weigh more heavily? And then we can backtrack to, okay, what does that mean about cranial nerves? What are your thoughts? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think that... um I guess for myself, I don't think of it as um, symptoms or signs in isolation that I'm automatically going to weigh necessarily more heavily than something else. Um, I think we can probably, if we sat here and put things into general categories, we could all agree that somebody coughing and choking on, you know, a three ounces of water is going to be probably weighted more heavily than a little bit of a, of a um, facial droop. You know, like there's just certain things that maybe we can separate into categories. But I think in general, to me, I think of the bedside swallow eval as I almost can, like, I'm almost like a, um, like a prosecutor, (laughs) like a, like a lawyer in a case of like, I'm building a case for why I am providing a rationale as to why I I think somebody should have an instrumental evaluation, right? Yeah, but I still, still, I'm going to interrupt you for a second because I know I've heard you say this and we've had this conversation, but I feel 
like nobody's answering my question <laughs> and you and okay. i'm say already it, i'm already it more directly would you say ask it ask it more directly i'm asking sure absolutely because i realized i rambled i'm like i don't think i said the question clearly so thank you in your practices what were the more heavily weighted you guys are scientists so you know i want you to give me some percentages or something that were more heavily <laughs> weighted I mean, come on, guys, seriously, because I'm not the person who has spent many of my years purely doing clinical work. So it mm-hmm. stands out to me that individuals have had a stent of pure clinical work still say, I mean, we could say that coughing is probably more. Why don't you? I mean, you guys, if you had two columns of checkbox here and checkbox there. Yep. In this setting, I saw this in that setting. I tended to see that. Has anyone ever in their clinical practice, in your experience, it might be a yes, no, actually put a number to say, yes, this percent of the time, I tend to end up seeing this on floor when these things, maybe not one, these things happen Mm -hmm. at the bedside. You might subjectively go have a sense of it, but isn't it pretty simple to, to start writing things down and going, gosh, actually, I always think a cough matters. And really, it's not much different from voice, from watery eyes. And a lot of people would fight that fight back. But what if in your practice, that's what you're seeing? So what's the number, guys, if you collected them? That's my question. What's the number? I know you don't have. OK, one. well, first, first, you want us to tell you that we did not yes. collect data in our clinical practice. So, yes, <laughs> I, I yeah, she knows me, Kendri- Kendria. She knows me well enough to know that I just want to get to the point that people don't write things down to figure out what their actual qualitative or quantitative data are and they can no one's stopping them you don't have to write the person's name down sure yeah so there's a couple points within that so one and um alicia i was thinking about this when you were first uh talking is that linking back to function um which i think i mentioned the very beginning so my uh students are trained in in the um, template that i provided after asha connect and when i gave another lecture on the cranial nerve exam talks about if you so if you read in my impressions um it has to link back to function, right? So because you, I think the facial droop is a fantastic example, right? Because, you know, a little bit of uh, facial droop, well, some patients can compensate very well. So for them, it's actually more of an aesthetic thing, not that it's actually impacting speech and swallowing function. And so I think that's something important because that's what I'll comment. So I want to acknowledge like, yes, I saw some lower facial asymmetry, but then I'll say, however, did not perceptually appear to impact motor speech function. And there was no overt signs of anterior loss of the bowls or however fancy you want to make your swallowing terminology. (laughs) Right. Um, And so, so that, so that's what, so I definitely do that. Now, one thing and getting, um, so I think this is useful, and I think I could do this, is that a lot of times um, my cranial nerve exam is performed before my fluoro. And so I don't do a good job, but it could easily do this, tie back to what I saw. And so that would be unique. So sometimes when I was in, um, when I was doing outpatient 
uh, in Charleston, it could be that like that was the first time I was seeing the patient was in the radiology suite. So I'd actually quickly do a cranial nerve exam, you know, do a quality of life questionnaire or do whatever, get some history, et cetera. Um, so that would have been a perfect opportunity then to see like, okay, what did I see on my cranial nerve exam and tie that immediately because it's more close in time. Um, but a lot of times now it could be where I do my cranial nerve exam and it might be a week, two weeks, a month, two months before they get their fluoro. And in the ALS world, a week, two weeks, especially two months, can all, can have some pretty rapid changes, potentially, not all the time. Um, so I think you, we could easily do that. But I know for myself, um, and now you've challenged me, that I don't do that now. But I think it could easily be done. Again, going back to the standardization of what you're doing. But two, and um, at least you were talking about the terms mild, moderate, and severe. Throwing my hands up in the air because I absolutely agree because that's very subjective to me. And so we have these wonderful tools to make a little bit more, and we can argue sometimes too about what we mean by objective, um, but at least we can quantify some things. And so there actually is a cranial nerve examination that was published. Um, it's called the INI, and and I, I can't think of the first author's last name off the top of my head, so I apologize. But they attempted to provide an ordinal scale, right? And so they were very descriptive then about a zero for a lip closure or a lip seal versus a one versus a two versus a three. So they attempted to define severity by making these very clear descriptions to help differentiate again on an ordinal scale. And so it'd be interesting then that you could start tailoring that and running some um, uh, correlations between, okay, so what really was contributing then to say why you recommended NPO, and I know we can have a whole issue on talking about diet recommendations and tolerance <laughs> and all that stuff, so I, wanna, I don't want to get there, but you know where I'm getting at, you can actually yeah. start looking into that, um, and you have to think about, there are, so for me, you asked a question beforehand, I was going to answer it, and it <laughs> was which, um, you're like, what seems to be more, most salient to me? Right. And so I can tell you for me and my clinical experience that one of the hallmark things I look at is if I'm seeing some tongue dysfunction, that to me, I'm like, okay, the we know the tongue is a major uh, pressure generator, not just for the oral phase, I'm doing phase in quotes, um, but also <laughs> contributes to fragile phase, I'll still in quotes um, as well. So to me, when I do see that lingual dysfunction, then I'm like, okay, now I have a. I have more red flags going off, right? Because that's what we're looking for, whether you want to call it risk assessment or whatever. Um, those are more things that make me pause a little bit. And then I may do a little bit more digging. So for me, definitely the tongue. And I would also say definitely changes in vocal quality. Not so much the wet vocal quality, because I still think that can be a little bit more subjective. But, you know, the patient comes in with an audible change where it's, you know, it's, they sound very hoarse or they sound to me what I would classify as spastic. Again, mostly because I'm only dealing with neuro. Um, that to me are some like key signs like, oh, I, I'm going to be more likely to refer those patients to instrumentation than, than not. So I, I like the reinforcement and I, my um, excitement there was probably also heightened because Alicia said prosecutor and I feel like one. <laughs> so <laughs> definitely I'm so glad to hear the, here's what, here's what I want everybody to do. I want everybody to not even go to the level of ordinal, meaning you have more than one 
points that you have in a sequential scale of some sort. So think of uh, a penetration aspiration scale as an example, where a one is obviously much more preferable than an eight. And the idea is that it gets worse and worse, right? But um, that application of that number is is still subjective in, in several ways. It's really not the quantitative variable we want, right? But I wouldn't even go that far. I would go, or like a pain scale, I would go binomial, or sorry, binary, yes or no, present or absent to start. Meaning, yes, you saw what you defined tongue function as. You told them to do something and they couldn't start it for 30 seconds. You told them to do something and, or you poke their tongue, they couldn't feel it. Because to me, sensation's way bigger than perhaps a little bit of deviation of the tongue or something like that, right? Whatever it is you think that you're going to make your maybe three to five things, and I feel like these matter, but I actually don't know. If somebody said what percentage of the time, I wouldn't even really be able to throw out a ballpark. I just feel like I'm seeing it. And then, because I want people to check their confirmation bias really well. There are things that we've been hearing over and over again are big things. And then... I never hear any follow-up in see any follow-up in the next step testing because we all agree instrumentation should be next step testing. It's not the very first time, uh, not necessarily you see a patient, but the patient's swallowing and oral function should ever be tested. It should always be preceded with a clinical test of some sort by somebody, right? So why is the next step testing not, not uh, giving a nod to the first step testing in any way? Why isn't it that saying, the hype, the reason we're here is because we thought these were big signs and we'd like to determine whether or not those signs, this is hypothesis testing, bore out. And we yeah, find, I mean, I think- and we, and then you have to say when you're wrong, you have to say, this person presented with lingual block. This happens in our, our evals by physicians all the time. By the time I go back to my primary care, they've looked at the instrumentation they sent me out to go. Like if I and it just had been scoped for like GERD or something, they come back and say, patient had these symptoms, but the person doesn't have a hernia. They always go back to what they said and say, okay, look, these things exist in this one human being. We take the yeah. second second step testing and it's not even connected to the first. So we don't even know if all those things you said could be cough, it could be tongue deviation, it could be the patient complaining about consistently having this experience is borne out and everybody gets the next report and just reads this like this is the first thing that mattered. So I yeah. really challenge I mean- people to go back and say, this was happening at the clinical eval, it had no bearing or that hypothesis did not ring to be true. However, we found these other things, which did not have a sign at the clinical setting. Yeah, I think that, you know, and I'll throw myself under the bus a little bit, you know, on this and, and admit that I, I think there is a tendency in general, in, in our general practice that it's almost like the clinical swallow eval is like you're trying to get like your ticket into the club, right? It's like, okay, now when you got in, you're like, all right, you know, they opened up the, you know, the, the red uh, VIP area, whatever, <laughs> the VIP area. And you're like, okay, well, now, I, now I'm in now. Now I'm starting with a blank slate, right? So, you know, admittedly, sometimes when I walk into a floral suite, it's like, well, I did my bedside and I justified why I should be here. Now I'm now I'm starting fresh and I just want to have a clean slate as to walking into this floral, um, you know, to see what I'm going to see, right? And not... Um, you know, I think I think we don't carry through that hypothesis well enough. But it also confirms our psychology that we never really believed our clinical evaluation because we just dumped that thing like the dude. It's It's like like the bouncer guy. It's the bouncer guy who you were flirting with to get in. And once you got her like, dude, if you don't get up, I'm in the club. I'm in the VIP section popping bottles right now. I know you didn't come out from the front door to talk to me. 
You got me in and you are done. Your purpose is done. <laughs> yeah. Uh, just describe no. my twenties. Um, <laughs> yeah. But so, so but I also, so I think there is some research out there. So you have to think about, um, so the Yale Solid Protocol, right? So Dr. Sudas and Dr. Invader's work. Mm -hmm. So even though the pass fail in that screen only comes from the three ounces, they still have the orientation questions and the three oral met questions. And the reason for those three individually is when they ran all their correlations, those were the ones that came out saline that contributed to those that were ended up failing that actually had a positive science for aspiration is documented. Sure on um, instrumentation. So I think, so to me, what that's telling me is that we absolutely could do that. Um, and we have ways to do that. Um, and actually one of theirs is related to tongue function. Um, and so that kind of confirms, but again, it goes back to, it's, we can't fix nerve repair i can't fix a hemorrhage that impacted cortical vulvar tract or a stroke that right. happened in the internal capsule or whatever it is um so what i what i'm interested in is the function of those things again as it relates back to the ability to communicate and the ability to swallow um and so when i so uh at attending at a clinic one time inquired about why I gave a cranial nerve exam. And the reason was because um, the attending was also doing a cranial nerve exam and didn't want for procedures to be, you know, repeated, sure. obviously unnecessarily, time, whatever. And, and I was like, that's a very fair question. And so we sat down and talked. And so I showed her my template was what I used for teaching and showed her my report. When she saw my perspective of how I was reviewing those results, she was like, keep doing it. And the reason why is because I was looking at it from a very different lens than she yeah. had. I have speech language pathology glasses on. You should see them. They're fabulous. But she was looking at it from a neurologist standpoint. Um, and so when she understood that for her, then it, it wasn't, we weren't, not double document, double nerve examination. Again, we had we had different perspectives about why we were investigating um, uh, something similar, and so, and because of that, when we came together to talk about our findings, we were each bringing kind of a unique perspective, and in that way, that allowed for um, uh, much better patient care because then we we stopped looking at it from very specific, okay, I need you to only look at the hands, OT. I need you to only look at the legs, PT. Uh, mm -hmm. SLP, I need you to only look at the mouth, you know, and okay, so neurologist, I need you to only look at the brain. And, you know, mm -hmm. we stop looking at the different parts of the elephant and stand back and say, oh, that's an elephant. Yeah. Right? I think yeah. what you're saying is what we, one major, well, it sounds like we have a couple of big take-home points already. One is, we are not box checkers, which is sort of goes back to what Alicia and I have been talking about for three years on this podcast, which is you can function as a technician and a speech pathologist and simply check boxes and make lists and just write a list of impairments after a floral as an example. So-and-so impaired, so-and-so impaired. But it's really your job to make the picture really resonate in your documentation because you see the whole picture. Sure, you're a great example of that, you know, age old 
I don't know what we want to call it, um, metaphor. I'm not sure what it is where everybody's staring at a different part of the animal and saying this animal is long and skinny. No, this animal is flat and wide. One person's right. staring at the tail. One person's looking at the ear and nobody's stepping. Everyone needs to step back and say, this is an elephant first, but I specialize in ears, but I can never lose my perspective. And I use this as an example of when I'm training new students to science and I talk about those pixelated um, pictures where it's basically a picture that's made up of dots and usually when they are doing science because they're so focused on their very first project it's like the picture is like an inch from their eyes and they just see five dots and it's my job to keep pulling them back every second every now and again going I know you're obsessed with these five dots but there are 50,000 dots and this is actually a landscape of a beach just always remember that keep them back in your head you're allowed to do your project on your five dots but every now and again, remember, step back. And I feel like the cranial nerve exam is a great example of something that you can master if you have a standard protocol and check your boxes and you will always be reliable with yourself. But what does that mean in the grand scheme of the patient? That's where the skilled clinician comes in. And I'm hoping most clinicians who had that same conversation with the attending would win that attending over by their ability to speak at that level, except in your specialty. So they can go, we can have this conversation, but I recognize I would have never thought of the things that you mentioned. And I see why it's valuable as you, uh, for you as a team member on this team of patient care. And the second yeah, thing is, please, please know your dots, collect, collect, uh, connect your dots between your clinical and your instrumental. You can obsess about your dots then, tabulate, but do may have a hypothesis, leash. Well, and our soapbox about the cranial nerve exam relates to so many other things outside of the cranial nerve exam, right? It's like, you know, I look at the MBS IMP, for example, and to me, it's, it's such a similar philosophy of, um, you know, you can write down the, the impairments of all the different um, components of swallowing, but it can't stop there, right? Like that's where it's it, that's your data that is your data and how is that relating to function if we're not talking about how those numbers relate to function then what's the point you know because you can have an impairment in every single component on the mbsimp and have normal function you can have no impaired like really no impaired function and i think that it's the same thing in the cranial nerve exam it's like we can preach this all day where again just don't end at the at the data you have to describe it. How does this relate to function? What does this mean? How do we integrate this? How does it relate back to our bedside? Um, to me, the, it's the same exact thing. It's the same principle. It's the same soapbox. Right. I think primary care physicians are really smart to not, or let's take a pediatrician. They don't take a baby's height and weight at a particular age and say, well, this is off the curve. They look at the whole child and they ask questions about the child. How frequently they're using the bathroom? What's their temperament? How much do they eat? Because some kids eat a ton and they're just small. <laughs> you know what I mean? So and what they don't, and what they don't do is say, you need to be on a high X diet or this baby needs to be admitted if they're functionally yeah. not demonstrating signs of anything other than genetically this is a smaller family and you guys have a great diet let's just keep an eye on this if you ever notice this you know come back in yeah so I um when I was at Pitt my CF and subsequent um those few years were on inpatient uh, brain injury and but I had the opportunities to um also rotate on the spinal cord injury unit. And so there was a physiatrist that was the attending there and he was amazing because, you know, one of the things they always talk about if you're, if you've ever been, um, uh, 
if you've ever had a hospital stint, one of the things that they typically always ask you is when was your last bowel movement? You know, when was your last BM? And that was really, really important. And then people start flipping out. Like if you said, oh, it's been a couple of days. So in spinal cord injury, that is especially crucial because um, obviously with the spinal cord injury, which may, uh, which may impact their ability for bowel and bladder function, but also because it can send them into um, some complications if, if you're familiar with autonomic dyslexia. But, the, but what was interesting about this physiatrist is that he had a completely different approach. He would ask you when your last bowel movement, but then he would say those magic words. Well, typically, what was yeah. it? Right. What what was normal for you beforehand? And I think that's really, really important. Yeah, they're like, I right. always go every two days. You're like, well, then go you there for and poop every two days. You use less exactly. tooth. Use I say less toothpaste than me. Ill. Use less toilet paper than me. <laughs> oh wait, I have I have a great example. I know toothpaste. What is going on? Okay, so I have I have a similar example that happened to me, but the decision was opposite because of the um because of what this particular field does. So physiatry and OBGYN, not the same. So first kid coming in, like all my measurements are super low. Like nobody even really thinks I'm eight months pregnant. Everyone thinks I'm six months pregnant, but what the hell? I don't know. I've never done this before. So I'm getting ready to go do my thesis perspectives where I go and defend the pre-dissertation thing and I'm walking out and I get a call from my uh, OB and he goes, Hey, so, um, your numbers are looking really low and we want you to come in and come to the hospital though and get a real ultrasound. Cause you know, in the clinic, they do the little quick one, but the hospital one, they have the big high tech stuff where they like, you know, really test every little thing. And I'm like, can it wait until I finish my talk? He's like, well, you are two months behind and, uh, you, I said, you know, your baby seems really small. I'm like, we're kind of small people though. Like, could it be genetic? And he's like, Hey, look, we can wait and you can have a stillborn. You know, you choose. Good God, when you throw it out stillborn. So sure enough, I go to the hospital. They induce me right away a month early and sure. Titus is small. And you know what? He's just small. <laughs> he's born. His birthday's in October and not November because genetically we're just on the smaller side. So, uh, he's always off the curve, always has been. But in that field, being a month behind is, and I wasn't high risk or anything, but it just is not worth it because now they're viable, right? They can exist in a in controlled environment differently. So I understand patient groups or decision-making where a speech pathologist might have to go, you know what, usually this particular problem is something where we go, well, how frequently do you have a bowel movement? But everything you're telling me, again, taking the whole patient in and understanding the system really means this could be a big problem and we need to make this decision that seems more rash. But again, having a rationale makes those decisions seem more acceptable. Yeah. So true. I, can I switch topics for a second? Yeah. Not that I... You don't want to talk about my uterus? <laughs> my intrauterine growth restriction problems? <laughs> can you imagine um, somebody fast forward? They'd be like, why are they talking about bowel movements on a cranial nerve exam? And it's, it's just that I usually like to talk about your uterus over wine. And it's like two o'clock in the afternoon right exactly. now. We're all kind of in our offices. So maybe we can table, maybe we can table your uterus. Um, my question is, what do you guys think about how confirmation bias influences our cranial nerve exam and our, I guess, largely our bedside evaluation and our, um, the recommendations that we 
that we make based on that. Um, I think this can come from a different, a couple of different angles. One being, um, how does the diagnosis maybe inf- give us a confirmation bias towards what we're looking for in a cranial nerve exam? So, you know, the thing about a cranial nerve exam is that sometimes it's not black and white, right? You're kind of like, is that like you're, you're testing and you're retesting and, and it's just kind of vague. And I, and I always wonder, you know, how much does the person's diagnosis or any other factors maybe cause us to overdiagnose in a cranial nerve exam or maybe underdiagnose in, in a different situation? Um, and also our confirmation bias of, again, um, coming back to the conversation about how does this relate to function, that perhaps maybe we're seeing things in a cranial nerve exam that aren't impacting function, but because we saw something, we have to do something. And maybe we're over recommending patients for further treatment or further workup, um, just because we saw something and I'm using air quotes um, in, gonna, in a cranial I'm, nerve exam. I'm not gonna answer this. I'm gonna say two things, but I want Kendria to answer it because I want first for everybody to remember confirmation bias is a mental shortcut that all humans make based on previous information that has not necessarily, that's not necessarily useful in your decision and you are sent down the wrong path. It doesn't mean I have a bias toward this or bias toward that and it is helpful. For instance, movement, having minimal movement if you're a head and neck cancer clinician doesn't mean as much as if you're a stroke clinician or a neuroclinician. We expect stuff to move. They expect stuff to not move as much. So they'll see a little bit of movement and go, that's amazing. That bias makes sense because it's really based in what makes sense for that. We're talking about a confirmation bias where you've made a decision about what should happen based on previous things that are sending you down the wrong path. Go ahead. So like, let me give a good example, Kendria, is that you probably get a lot of patients where they're suspected ALS, right? Like maybe that's part of the differential. Do you feel like sometimes you have to check yourself to not go in with this preconceived idea of what you're already going to see? And then now you're looking for it. So now you see it because you're looking for it. Like, do you have to check yourself or just go, go and just talk about all those things? <laughs> yeah. So I think we'll shut up. Um, so this was a question. I don't know if you guys saw this and I can't remember what Facebook group was on, but it was just so interesting because I knew this was coming up and it showed up on Facebook. And so it was like, well, when we're thinking about, um, you know, efficiency of time and what we're doing and they postulated like, should we actually be doing cranial nerve exams or do you do them? And I was like, well, what? And I so bad and was someone saying, stay tuned. We're actually talking about this on, um, on the hatch, but kind of same thing because she one of the arguments was but they already come with me to a diagnosis and and i don't think she's an american-based clinician i was like well that's awesome because most of my patients do not um but like you're saying yes most of them will say they have some kind of differential it is very on the rare side where they have not seen a neurologist by the time they come to me because typically it's the neurologist that's referring to me but i've had enough I was wrong instances where I think I can probably check myself a little bit better. For example, my graduate assistant, um, all of a sudden I come out of, I think it was a faculty meeting and she goes, you have to call Dr. So-and-so who's one of the neurology attendings. And he's been looking for you. He's like frantic. And I was like, okay. And um, I was like, why is he calling the lab? Uh, He knows my number. And so I call him back. He's like, you gotta see this patient. And 
was like, okay, well, you know, schedule them, you know, through the clinic. He was like, hey, you got to see them now. <laughs> we, we don't know what's going on with her. I think it's ALS. And I was like, okay, well, you know, get her in. We'll definitely um, get her in the, on the on diagnostics team and, and we'll take a look. Well, it ends up being that um, she didn't. <laughs> and so it was, it was interesting because it was one of those rare circumstances where when she called me and left a message, I'm now hearing her new voice. And I was able to call her back and I heard her voicemail from her previous voice. And I was like, okay, I don't actually think this is ALS. You know, you bring her in, you can do an assessment where I confirmed that suspicion. And so then I was able to call the neurologist and back and be like, okay, here's what I'm hearing. Here's where I think the level of nervous system dysfunction is. Ergo, that doesn't really match up with what an ALS diagnosis. And now, obviously, I'm, I very well know my, uh, my scuba practice. So that's not really my report. That was a, a discussion with him. But I think because of my experience where um, I have had patients come in where we have no um, understanding of what's going on, which made me focus on linking back what I'm seeing without any previous um, notions about what I think I may find. Uh, and I realize that is a little bit unique because not everybody has had those same experiences. But I think, as always, you run the risk of missing important thing because all you're looking for is what confirms you because that makes you feel good right it makes you feel like i do know what i'm talking about and i'm not saying that and that's wrong and this is definitely not uh, uh, meant to be dogging clinicians it's just we have to recognize that we can be wrong and that's okay so we have to always think um to check ourselves and make sure that we're implying both rationalism and empiricism and saying, does this make sense based on what I, I know? Because clinical experience is still part of EVP. Does it make sense going back to just what do I understand about normal nervous system function? And does this match up with that? And if it's not normal, why do I think so? And then what are my clues? What is my evidence to support that statement? If you keep thinking about that, which is why, again, you have to link back to function, I think you can kind of limit that a little bit where you may not get in so, in so much trouble um, because you can be wrong. And guess what? Neurologists can be wrong. Physicians can be wrong. And so it should not be... Um, uh, you know, this thing of like, oh, I miss that. I can't tell you. So when I typically present on ALS, I have two modifieds that I show. One is, um, with a ball bar onset patient. So, uh, you know, anarthric, no functional communication whatsoever, could barely get out some vowel-like qualities. So, you know, tongue doesn't move, mouth open posture. Um, I put under fluoro, put her in inclined position because again, her tongue cannot move at all. Um, but man, her pharyngeal swallow was beautiful. I'm talking about You've had patients like that before, right? And then, but then I have my 92 year old, he's like six foot six. It was so funny. Like me trying to feed him. Um, cause I'm like, <laughs> shaking he's so tall bearing sliding everywhere but he was one of those no dysarthria no discernible dysarthria walking talking it was one of those i actually had no reason to recommend a fluoro but just something was like get him in the fluoro and i get him in a fluoro 
his pharynx looked like a head and neck, like frozen pharynx. Nothing moved. Wow. Nothing yeah. moved. He could not have his PS. Everything was falling into his airway. And I never use the term gross aspiration. That's literally what was happening. I had to calm down the radiologist because you could hear him being like, oh my God. Oh my God. And you know what? Like, what you said reminds me of Leash. Do you remember at Hopkins? We had, I had this patient and I was like, I need you to come see this. It was a woman. She could have been me. Like she was middle-aged, just regular looking, voice fine, cognition fine. She stood for her floral. And do you remember we gave her a bolus and she drowned in 5 ml and you could see her visibly drowning. She's like, <gasps> and then after she wanted so badly, badly to eat that she, she goes, I can do this. It's like she had been at floor after floor and she kept trying to qualify for the Olympics, but was always the last just couldn't make it and just kept trying to qualify. And I was like, I don't usually do this, but a hundred percent of it, you couldn't breathe yeah. while it was trying to get through your larynx. And you also have no capacity to cough. I don't know what that was. And we both went, yeah, we don't usually do this, but, and you know what, looking yeah. at her, that's why we gave her the cup. That's yeah. why we get, that's why we, she just bounced right in there. She was outpatient, walked right in. We're like, why are you here? I don't know, but I just did the florals. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. It, you just never know, which is why I, you know, I feel, I always feel cautious about, you know, when you ask the question about what are the most salient things that you see that will lead you to making a recommendation. And my, my first knee jerk reaction to that was I never want to, have our field be in a position where we have these pre perfect predicted algorithms where each sign or symptom gets a point and you know we say gosh I see this and it's weird but you know it's not very predictive and it's low on the weighted scale for being a concern so I'm not going to do anything about it and you know the more reliance on these predictive scales means a less reliance on our on our clinical judgment because there are things that you just can't measure and you just can't put on paper that um sometimes we can't explain like um Kendra you said you know there was just something about this guy that told you you have to get him in fluoro and, and it could have just been open floral slot yeah and it, <laughs> that, that happens <laughs> that happens and it's we can't, you have to recognize that. That's a huge piece of, of our practice. But don't you think, just... Alicia, don't you think that part of the reason we're saying this now could very well be that we are calling these people outliers because we don't know what normal action, what normal uh, signs versus, you know, positive and negatives are? Maybe these sure. are the majority of the people. Yeah. Meaning there is zero trend at all when it comes to this maybe it is possible that there is zero trend but because we our confirmation biases was so strong that somebody coming in hunched over with a droop face and a bad voice we're like holy crap get him in the floral when there's no data to support that but we just kept saying it so we start to confirm our own biases sure. and then they they turn around and confirm them for us and then we go well this guy was one we missed could have missed. So it's a close call and we go, he shouldn't have. So our metacognition makes us go, or sorry, our confirmation bias goes, well, he really shouldn't have looked that way. Why shouldn't he? Really, why shouldn't he have? That's the whole point in instrumentation is that you can't go based on these external features. Otherwise, nobody would put anyone under radiation exposure and give them barium and pay more money if 
there, if it had no purpose. So I almost feel like our human nature is one where we have to declare our bias. You remember our whole previous podcast in Eastham about before you can touch a therapeutic tool, there should be this magic genie box where in order to get the tool out, you have to declare the pathophysiology you're using it for. And if the box doesn't approve it, you can't touch it, like slaps your hand. I feel that <laughs> way about, I really feel that way about predicting who will be good and bad. You have to declare your biases before so that it can slap you in the face and say, you're biased against this and like list off the bias, like a sorting hat from Harry Potter or some sort. It's like, this is why, this is why you're this is why you're an idiot because you bias this way and you bias that way we have to like scream them out i am biased to thinking that if somebody walks talks looks normal has a perfect voice and has great cognition and blah 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 they do not have dysphagia you need to say it out loud and then walk in the floral and check the times that you are right and check the times you're wrong and actually you might realize 50 percent of the time i say that they actually have a problem and the data are not supporting these preconceived notions i have sure well, and we also have to consider the fact of, you know, we're, we're, we're looking at this, the way that we're talking about it right now is that like, you have a problem or you don't have a problem, right? And even with all things being constant between a lot of people having a problem, there's so many differences in what you do with that problem and whether you care about that problem based on their background and their history and what their wishes are and what their risk factors are that you could have 50 people that have the same exact problem and you do 50 different treatment plans. Or, and 50 p- people who might even not think that's a problem. Yeah, right. They don't care. So what and you're saying, Alicia, is really key, which is if you only have one bin, the problem bin, you kind of can't have a trend because it's just one bin. And you, there's so many reasons why someone can be there. But when you think of it as a continuum, as opposed to was I right or was I wrong? Did they deserve to be here or did they not? It's not about us anymore. It's about the system yeah. and what the system is showing us and being aware of what we can say and what we can't say based on what we can know and what we can't know and just be okay with that. You just yeah. have to be able to say, I can't know everything, which is why people can look one way and end up not having a problem or another way and end up having a problem. The system is complicated. Yeah. So that report that I wrote for the 92-year-old described what I saw. And at the end of the day, I called the PA and told her about the, and I said, I was like, yeah, he like really shocked me. I've never been so shocked and I still haven't been so shocked in my life as I was in, in that example. And, um, and she's like, okay, so we'll like schedule for, you know, I'll send him over GI, get a feeding tube. I was like, oh, no, no, no. Like, Oh, trust me, that was not the first time he aspirated in that in that floor suite. Um, and he had never had a pneumonia. Um, uh, and he had ALS. I showed him the video. We talked about it. He um, he very much loved his wife's cooking. For him, he had no um, he had no expression of difficulty. So for him, he did not realize he was having trouble. In fact, you can hear me on the fluoro. How do you think that went down? He says it went down perfectly and you can see him. He gives me a thumbs up. So for him, it wasn't choking him like your example. Um, he had absolutely no clue. Finally, eventually a little bit ended up passing through the PES, but most of it just fell into his airway. Um, and so for him, it wasn't effortful to swallow it wasn't effortful to eat and he still really enjoyed it and so it was a great example of again taking a step back and like you were saying it's like I wasn't just putting him into a problem bin all I in my report I described what I saw yeah but at the end but 
for, and I described how that impacted the swallowing function per se, but that's a, that's a really small piece of the overall health system. And, that, and that's one of the, when people ask about why do you have your health and rehab PhD and not an SLP PhD is because that's the education that I wanted. I thought that would allow me a, a better understanding the holistic view of the body in itself and being with other um, professionals because with being with ALS, it's mostly, all, most, you know, a lot of the clinics are interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary. And so it's learning about our very small part in the grand scheme of things, and that's taking care of human patients. When I teach clinical research for graduate students, one of the things I talk about is um, you know one of the, the one of the biggest limitations about patient-oriented research is that it's human subjects research. Like that's the biggest limitations because humans are freaking variable, and that's awesome. And we can celebrate that diversity. Um, and but you also have to understand that that means your 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 continuum line is probably a lot bigger than what you originally thought. And that typical variation is a lot. Trust me, bigger than you thought. And I know a lot. Of, each of us has done aging research. And so we've looked a lot, a lot of healthy swallows before, and we know they are extremely variable. And so when we try to, yeah, sort by just you're perfect, you're not, is when we're going to miss some very important things. And then that's when we become very risk um, adverse and we like want to be proactive because we feel like we have to do something when in fact we put them in the wrong bin. <laughs> yeah. Or we put ourselves in the wrong bin as somebody who could do the magic uh, that we thought we could. It's like you, you can't do magic. Um, we're just, we're just not, you know, wizards. We're, we're muggles. Speak for yourself. <laughs> well, well, how would you guys, uh, how would you guys sum up? Uh, did you have something else to add? Yes, I have one more question. Yep. It's a final question. Yeah, good, perfect. We'll end with Kend- that. I do. I, um, I want to ask Kendria because obviously this is a topic that you're really passionate about and can speak really eloquently about. And I want to give you the opportunity if there's anything, any um, soap boxes that we haven't touched upon or any pet peeves you have related to the cranial nerve exam, maybe advice you have for students that you always kind of harp on or anything that you really care about that you feel like we haven't touched upon to give you that opportunity. Um, I would just say my biggest soapbox, I think I actually use a picture of feet on a soapbox when I present this is that I think the whatever you're going to call it I call it a cranial nerve exam um I think it's 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 powerful in the right hands and what I mean by the right hands is meaning that those again that have a standardized approach and interpretation of what they're seeing or what they're measuring and linking that back to function that's when that's where the power comes from. It's not just to say that you saw impairment in so and so cranial nerve. Um, we, we we have the expertise to go way beyond that. So we have to tie it back to how it's impacting communication and swallowing, and then we can verify that later. Either if we're doing objective measures, say if you want to do the IOP or for a call flow test, or um, in, under instrumentation for swallowing evaluation. Um, I would, so I, I, I think it can be extremely powerful. So I always say every patient, every consult, every time, I don't care what the consult is for. I don't care if it's for aphasia. I don't care if it's for cognitive communication function. I always do a cranial nerve exam. 
Um, because again, if they're coming to me, that means there is a suspecting of something either related to communication or swelling. So I want to make sure that I'm evaluating the entire system. The other thing is that it's definitely worth spending time on um, learning the learning the nervous system because that's going to help you better be able to define potentially what neural substrate or at le what level of nervous system dysfunction is what you're seeing. Because um, as you as you mentioned, you know, we, we call it the cranial nerve exam, but we know the impairment may not be from the cord that's going from the outlet to the toser, that it actually may be from, uh, well, because I actually use that analogy, which is why it stuck out to me when I talk about um, efficacy of vital stem. I'm like, well, the cord's cut. It doesn't matter if you slap on electrodes on the toaster or not. Anyway, well, that's a whole, we can do that on another episode. But um, <laughs> but if the signal coming to the outlet, right, so if we're thinking about cortical bulbar tract, right, and that's impaired. So, but, so the, but there are, so if you understand in those clinical signs that can be seen overtly, um, then that can be, help inform your decision about why you're seeing what you're seeing and how that can impact function. That's going to make you really um, do the best service for your patient because then you're able to more appropriately decide, okay, and with their, with their um, input about, okay, how is this? impacting swallowing how is this impacting communication what is my role then with regards to treatment because i may not have a role and then where do i need to go to next again it's about that informed clinical decision making process and i think that the cranial nerve exam can absolutely help you with that yeah That's i really liked i really liked what you said about it can be a powerful tool which immediately made me think of nunchucks which is i I could never make them a powerful tool. Like there's somebody who could kill somebody with them. If they were in my house, they would be a door witch. Should like keep the door open because I don't even know how to use them. But if you it know can, how to use them. It can be a waste of your time. It, it can, can be a waste, waste of your time, time and the patient's time. If you don't know what to do with the nunchucks, right? If you're just, and to me, the door wedge analogy with nunchucks is just poking around, looking for a response and checking a box as opposed because to you can really be perfect at it. You can be perfect at administering oh, yeah. cranial nerve exam exactly. and still have no idea what to do with it. Yeah. Yeah. And again, that's where you have to understand the whole system and that this is just one part in why something is or is not working. So I, there's one thing that we did not bring up, which is one of Ianessa's soapboxes. So I will allow you to just give your like one minute spiel on this, which is that the cranial nerve exam is potentially overemphasis has an overemphasis on motor function and not sensory function. Um, so, would you like to elaborate on, on your soapbox about that? I would like to elaborate on it. I just want to say that the last podcast we had in this series was on sensation, and even okay. then, everybody's looking for a movement when you know a reflex, a true reflex, requires sensation in that leads to an irrepressible stereotypic motor response. All we are able to see goes back to what I think you said, Alicia, on our very first one in the series, which is there are all these things happening in the system, but it ultimately spits something out that we record. So if you think about the way a printer is dealing with taking information from a laptop, it's making noise, there's a bunch of 5,000 things and they're moving. All we get is the piece of paper and we have to use that piece of paper to go, oh, there's a there's a red streak through the middle of the paper. I think something's going on with the toner. But we don't actually know by the time the paper is spit out. And that's why we're so obsessed with motor. 
But if there's anything else, like the signal coming into the printer to even get it started, who cares what you get out? The signal was wrong. So to me, the sensory testing doesn't happen as much as it should. And that is my, that is my really big soapbox that the other half of the system can be tested and is not tested. Yes, absolutely. So it's not just, I don't call it a motor cranial nerve exam. Yeah. Um, no, no. I, and we're not saying yeah, that you, we're not saying yeah. that you did this, but just yeah. this soapbox idea. But I think it's yeah. true. And so I go back to, but what did that resident do? Typically the time they say, stick out your tongue, smile and puff out your cheeks. That's all motor. And, and I think so we you, can say, no, I think we should, you should call it a cranial motor exam if that's what you're doing. I actually right. have no problem with that. If that's what somebody's doing, they're doing a motor test, call it that. But yeah. people make it sound like they're doing this big sensory motor integration thing. And they're not. <laughs> and you know what? If somebody sticks their tongue out, there is sensory involved. There's proprioception to know where your tongue is in space. They executed it. They were able to take an exogenous command and funnel that down into a behavior. So you do infer, infer that aspect of sensation, but it's never documented. They just say, oh, tongue slightly deviated to the left. Well, they were able to do so much up until then. And I almost think that by ignoring sensation, you ignore so much of what they could do. It was perhaps just the final execution point that was slightly skewed. Yep. True. So like, and you can ask them to stick out their tongue and say, stick it to the right. And they, and you see that it doesn't go all the way over, but if you actually make them have more effort to go over, then they can do it. And so it's one of those things where, okay, so is there feedback telling them that they hit their target and they actually did it? And again, this is why we do swallowing and, and, and communication. So just that, that, that peripheral feedback is so important to communication, how we develop, you know, our ability to talk and what, and, and that we are constantly getting feedback, auditory feedback, peripheral feedback, proprioceptive feedback as part of that peripheral feedback. It is so important. And so that's why I, me, myself, never test the gag reflex. And same thing with initiation for pharyngeal swallow. Is it a sensory thing? Is it a motor thing? Is it both? And that's So wait a minute, really, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought we were wrapping up and then you said you never test a gag reflex because what? You said you don't know if it's sensory or motor so i have so one thing so we know some healthy people don't have gag reflex right so we know that but if i test we know we don't they don't have it under the constraints that we put them under yes so when i test if if you test me and i don't have a response why well that's your job same way if you say stick your tongue out and they don't stick it out why so to me, so, to me, the process of figuring it out can't, I think gag reflex has a bad name because historically people would say gag reflex, no reflex, then you, you have a swallowing problem. But to me, as I said in the sensory, in the sensation podcast, why are we testing cough then? Voluntary cough or reflex cough. But. I don't know. That's the question I'm asking. Why are we <laughs> testing that? And it is at least not even overlapping with the swallowing behavior mechanism that we test. Frankly, a reflex, a reflex that's that requires a sensory stimulus that has a stereotypic cascade of events that mimics some things in the swallow. You do have to protect your airway. You do have some pharyngeal squeeze. Your tongue goes the opposite direction. It goes out instead of in. Is a way to get a sense of those same brainstem nuclei to see whether or not they respond, right? But saying cough now, that is a completely different pathway. And you may never cough through five meals over the next five months. So they could cough you like, I don't know what that means, actually. So to me, I hear people say that. And I wonder if there's a rationale other than 
anything else. There are some people who don't cough to certain reflex tes- uh, sensory testing as well. I mean, you have to get it real the threshold higher for some the people. Higher, right? It's the same thing with the gag. Um, the other thing I would say about a gag is it is primed based on a lot of contextual things. If you have been smelling bad smells and seeing something gross, people gag with those alone. And there are other people, and you even come near them with a tongue brush, so they're already like dry heaving. And there are other people who don't, if that same person doesn't have that context, then that brainstem system is not saying protect your protect, get this thing out of your system. And so it's not there. So I do think, I do think we have a little bit of bias there to not test it when I don't see why we wouldn't actually. So I guess I would put in the contents back. So if what could you, what would, what unique offering would a gag reflex give you that some other tasks, because now you're talking about nine and 10 together, right? Nine's going in the afferent information and 10 is producing the maturic response as a response to that. Um, it depends It depends on where you stimulate and right. how it's elicited. You could be eliciting right. it in all kinds of ways. Some people are so sensitive. You say, I'm going to test your gag and they're halfway there. It's oh, like the me. foreplay, the foreplay's yep. there. Just touch me anywhere and I'm off. Right. So what? Sorry. What, I don't know why. Good God. What? <laughs> it is so Friday. <laughs> Go ahead, so Kendria. What, what unique thing, if you test the guy reflect, what unique thing are you getting that you would not get from other things that you could perform in the cranial nerve exam? I get your question, but here's my stance. And this is going to be really annoying. This is my Socratic method. You're asking me that when you're the one with the rule. See, what you've done is you said, I test things and not that. And I'm saying, what is it about gag reflex that does not mimic the rules of what the other things are that you test? And that's what I'm saying. I'm, I'm saying I don't exclude things because I don't think they're different. I'm not, I don't think that they all have unique offerings. That's not the theory from which I'm testing. I'm testing the full system. And that gag reflex, as I said, mimics the kind of cascade of events that requires a sensory motor quick response that's uninhibited that has overlapping um, uh, cranial nerve nuclei that I like to see way more than stick your tongue out and wag it. So if there's no unique offering for sticking your tongue out and wagging to mimic, to map back onto the function I'm primarily interested in, to me, that is a reason why I do it. I'm not looking for a unique offering, but if that's what you're looking for, then I would say to you, what's the unique offering of sticking your tongue out or puckering your lips? Because to me, that doesn't map to the function. I, I'm also, I'm going to recognize my bias that, so with ALS, obviously it's upper motor neuron dysfunction, right? And so that means a lot of my patients are super hyper reflexive. Um, and so to me, it is not beneficial at all to test a gag reflex because they're going to, they're, it's, it's, I can't even pass a scope in them to even if I wanted to form a fees, let alone, you know. So you are testing the gag reflex. You are using the gag reflex as a outcome of interest for you. So the gag reflex, all I'm saying is the gag reflex has gotten a bad name. And I understand that you might not make a concerted effort to test it in them because they can be hyper. But the idea that gag reflex doesn't offer information, unique information to me is something that is tainted with a history of people walking in rooms, gagging and saying, if it's there, there's a swallow. If it's not there, there's no swallow. It has completely left the list of things because we don't understand how it informs us about the whole system. 
that's that's my issue. So I that was better articulated than the what I was trying to say. That's because so, I obsess over it more than I should. <laughs> no, 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 no. So that was exactly what I was trying to say that I, I was not being clear on. The we um again it's about the the power of what you're seeing. And so you have to be careful with making sure that you're not overreaching and recognizing the limitations of that's going to be inherent, including in a cranial nerve exam. The history of um, the clinical importance or the clinical utility of performing a gag reflex I, um, and into this binary response of like, they don't have a gag reflex. Obviously they have dysphagia and they need a peg tube, you know, kind of thing. Um, I, I think unfortunately it has been passed down along the lines of tradition. Um, and it's this, and so it, it's, has had too much power in the past. And I think it, again, it goes back to, you were talking about the arc that occurs with the gag reflex, but I don't know if that's always taught when they're talking about, this is how you test the gag reflex. And I don't know if it's always, um, what about you? What about you, Kendria? When you do your courses, when you've done your clinical, do you talk about it at all? Do you just not even say gag reflex, gag reflex, or do you actually say, I don't test it, or it doesn't offer anything in your, like your, I didn't see any of your online courses or your, I'm, obviously I'm not in your classroom. So I'm just curious. Do you just not say it? So we do you don't not say the, the G word? No, we do talk about the gag reflex because I talk about it as part of the reflex testing. Um, I talk about the the assumed um, physiology of it. We talk about, um, you know, that nine is bringing the information in. We talk about where it's going in in the in the brainstem. We talk about the importance of interneurons. We talk about the motoric response as a result of that. We talk about. But what do you should, say that they should do it or shouldn't or sh- should do it? Should or should 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 or should not do it. I say that I I recommend that if they're going to do it, they recognize some limitation if responses on both sides are absent. That's how I put it. So if you test on both sides and, and you don't get a response on either side, that could just be like maybe they just you didn't do the threshold high enough for that person. If it's a if it's asymmetric, I think that's actually pretty that's pretty important clinical sign for me because but if it's asymmetric, isn't the second one going to be tainted by the first? So this is a lot like an action potential in terms of threshold. The first one you might not have been quite as heightened. The second one you just gagged and you were in gag city. So isn't the second one? Isn't there an order effect with a lot of these with these things? And unless of course it's too quick. Like since we were talking about orgasms or knee jerks, it's it's the system has not sort of come back to equilibrium, and that sensory information needs to be higher, needs to be right. more summated to respond. Right, right. I'm getting so way off track. Leash, bring me back. I don't know where we went. I'm sorry. I think it's just a cost benefit analysis. I think that for me, it's is what I'm going to gain from literally gagging my patient going to be enough information to continue to do it on every single right. patient? Exactly. For me, the answer is usually no. No, like. It's not going to be a deal breaker. It's not going to, you know, put me over the threshold of changing a recommendation. So I just normally don't do it. Like, that's just my thought on it. Yeah, I hate gagging. It's so uncomfortable. And I'm a super hyper. Like, if you just be saying gag, like, makes me get that globus sensation. I'm just like, um, so I'm just saying I wouldn't do it in a case where I just, you know, I'm really just trying to figure out what's going on. If I'm suspecting that 
maybe there's a neurological issue that's happening that nobody has diagnosed, um, then perhaps I may investigate a little bit further, but, um, well, we have been talking for a while. And as, as we said before, we were going to go on major tangents and we know it's a good discussion when we end talking about gags and how uncomfortable it is and just all, all the paths we went down. That means it was, it was a good one. So I'm, I'm really pleased with the direction we went in. And if I did want to say, if people listen to this podcast and they wanted a list of locations and nerves <laughs> that does exist in the swallowing physiology series which we did last year we covered each swallowing event we talked about cranial nerves etc you could also go to stepcommunity.com that's a swallowing training education portal that's what step stands for and we have a lot of visual tutorials that take you through all of these it doesn't work as well on a podcast to do something that requires more visualization. So we talked about larger concepts and we're very grateful that Kendria was willing to tolerate us um, because this, you know, it's kind of a funky format for something that it doesn't have one answer. So we actually did a good job because there is no one answer for anything, right? <laughs> and that's what makes it being a speech pathologist fun. It's true. It is. Thanks for joining us. This was really, really fun. And I really enjoyed hearing your perspective and your expertise. I um, regret that we haven't had much opportunity now with DRS, you know, not happening and, and things like that to, to sit down and, and chat science. And um, I think next time we do this, we'll definitely have to do it over wine. That's my only request. Yeah, usually we do this later and, you know, it's, it's a little bit more fluid. But, you know, we can do this again and we can talk about Eastem 2.0 if you want. Yeah. Without the think toaster. Of, think of another topic that you'd really want to talk about. Maybe it's not easy. <laughs> well, thank you guys so much for having.